The Old Testament reading today comes from Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The word of the Lord. Well, I'm sorry that the Old Testament reading was so long this morning. I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, it's, it's really good to be back with you guys. Um, if you don't know, Kelsey and I have been gone for uh, since August 1st. And this is our first Sunday back. And we had uh, an awesome trip, and it was really great. But one of the things that we really missed, I mean, like, we were in the Pacific Northwest. Like, we were going all around. We did a whole tour and um, we slept outside some, some nights. It was great in a tent. Uh, we were camping. But um, one of the things that we talked about on the way back was like, man, I, I'm so excited to get back to Greenville like, so we can go back to church because this church is great and y'all are great. And I'm, I'm really glad to be back here with y'all. So thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> not like you had a choice, but thank you. Uh, but today we're, we're going to be looking at one of the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at the first commandment, um, as we just read, and we're going to be looking at it through the lens of the rich young ruler, and that was what Bob read to us this morning. So we're going to be flipping back between those two, so you might want to keep your bullets in handy, uh, or in your Bible, if you want to put your finger, we're going to be flipping back and forth, so that's what we'll be doing. Um, But I'm, I'm sure that for some of you here this morning, when I say that we're going to be talking about a commandment. We're going to be talking about the law. Maybe on the inside that makes you wince a little bit, like you kind of reel back because you don't know really what to expect from a preacher who's talking about the law. Um, <clears throat> you know, maybe you grew up in a church environment or in a family that used the Ten Commandments as uh, a fear tactic or as uh, like a wooden spoon to kind of get you to behave. Um, or maybe for others of you, you're in here and that wasn't your experience, but you're kind of like, I've heard all this stuff a million times. Uh, also, I, I don't even know if the Ten Commandments apply to us in the New Testament. Um, like, all that commandment stuff was in the Old Testament. Why are we talking about this? Well, I hope that I, convince, I can convince you this morning that, um, one, the commandments aren't a fear tactic. Um, and they're not like a wooden spoon to get you to behave. Uh, and two, that they really do apply to us now, today, um, in, our, in our current context. You know, Jesus said, don't think for a second that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Rather, I came, I came to keep every single one of them intact. I'm, I'm the glue that keeps them together. And, and he came to teach us what they mean and, and actually empower us to follow them. And um, one of the things that Tim has said over and over and over again while he's been going through First Peter is that as Christians, as New Testament believers, we have this paradigm to think about the relationship between the law and the gospel. And you've heard him say this a million times. He says, you know, there's, there's this indicative before there's the imperative. There's an indicative before the imperative. And what he's saying is that God says there's something true about you. There's something true about your being before he asks you to do something. There's something true about you before there's something you have to do. And, and I think that the reason we get tripped up on things like the Ten Commandments, or we get messed up on like sermon application, or uh, even, 
I'm sure that a lot of the confusion for most of us in the Christian life is because we think we have to do something before we are. We get those things mixed up. We get them backwards. And so what I want you to hear me say before we talk about this, I want you to hear me say that the reason the law applies to you is not because it will save you. It's not because it will save you. Paul says it'll do the opposite. The law will condemn you. The law will kill you. The reason the law applies to you now is because you've already been saved. You've already been rescued. You've already been redeemed. You've been given this resurrected life. Now, this is what the resurrection life looks like. And so that's what I want you to keep in mind as we go through this first commandment. And so what I, what I hope, at, by the end of the sermon, what I hope you can walk away with this morning is that because God has brought you out of slavery, because he's redeemed you, because he's brought you out of bondage to yourself and to your sin, that there's no room in your life for other gods. Because God has brought you out of slavery, there's no room in your life for other gods. And I'll, I'll give you my points up front. Um, the, Kelsey really likes when I do this, so I'll do it for you guys and all you note takers out there. Um, because God has brought you out of slavery, uh, number one, you personally, you individually, you belong to him. And number two, because he's brought you out of slavery, he is your only source of life. So you belong to him and he is your only source of life. So let me pray for us before we, before we begin. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you so much for this church, for this body of real humans, of real family and real friends uh, who are all experiencing different things and sometimes the same things and and coming from different places. And I thank you that um, we love each other because you first loved us. Um, And that this is a place where um, you have put us and you've given us your presence and your word. um, And you promise that you will be with us until you lead us home. Um, and Father, I pray that we'd feel that this morning. Now I pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> have you ever felt this, this nagging feeling at some point in your life? Have you ever felt like you just don't belong? Like you just don't belong. I know, for me, this happens um, when I'm writing one of my papers during the semester. I'm in seminary, if you don't know. But during the semester when I'm writing one of my papers, and uh, usually about, about ten pages in, uh, I will stop and I'll look at what's on the screen and I'll think to myself, this paper is terrible. Where am I even going with this? What am I even doing with my life? You know, like my, my homework turns into an existential crisis real quick. Uh, I don't belong here. What am I doing? Uh, and maybe for you, it's like it's mid-afternoon and you're in your office uh, or in your cubicle or maybe you work remotely and you're in like the new space of the village grind or something cool uh, and you're working on this project, and you just can't seem to finish it. And you're like, how did I even get this job? Like, why am I even still hired here? Why am I still working here? Um, or maybe for you, you're, you're in your studio, and uh, the picture that's in your head is not the same thing as the picture that's like on the paper or on the canvas or on the computer screen. And, and you, you just can't get it right, and you think, like, why did this person hire me for this job? I I'm not even that good of an artist. What am I doing? Or maybe for you, you're at home and you've done nothing but clean up after your kids and clean up what's on your kids and clean up what's come out of your kids. 
And you, you actually think, I love my children, I love my children, I love my children. I'm such a terrible parent, what am I doing? Uh, well, statistically speaking, if you're breathing and you have a belly button, you can relate to this at some point in your life. You've, you've felt this feeling. But I want to encourage you because you're actually in really good company. There, there are plenty of really high-achieving, successful people who express the same sort of thing. Um, Maya Angelou, after publishing 11 books and winning three Grammys for spoken word albums. I didn't even know that was a category, but she won three Grammys. And uh, she was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and a Tony. And she says this. She says, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find me out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. Tom Hanks. Ever heard of him? Uh, in an interview with Terry Gross, this was two years ago. In, in 26, This is 2016 Tom Hanks. Not like he's on the set of Big and he feels this way, but like he's made it. He's, he's one of the you know, most renowned actors and producers ever to live. And, and he says in an interview two years ago, he says, No matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, How did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am in fact a fraud and take everything away from me? Well, this phenomenon, this experience is is pretty well documented. It's clinically proven. And and it spans across race and religion and ethnicity and career and culture. You know, it affects the least of these and the most distinguished of these. Like, I'm sure that some of you in here are feeling this right now. And I'm also sure that Elon Musk is feeling this right now. You know? And um, it actually has a name. It's called imposter syndrome. And um, it's not a mental condition. It's it's an experience. It's a phenomenon. But it's where individuals who, despite all contradicting external evidence, believe themselves to be fraudulent, incapable, unlovable, inadequate schmucks who got lucky somehow. All right, so what does that have to do with the first commandment? Good question. Um, Maybe there are still even a select few of you in here who, who still think, like, I, I kind of feel pretty adequate. I feel pretty well equipped to deal with, you know, my singleness or my marriage or uh, my job or uh, as a parent. But I think that even for those select few of you who feel that way, there's one area where we can all agree that we've, we've felt this way in the past. And that's in our relationship with God. You know, our relationship with God, sometimes maybe you feel like an imposter. That, that aspect of our life that's supposed to be the most important, the most secure, the most unconditional, I would venture to say that um, probably if you're honest with yourself, for a lot of your Christian life, you've kind of felt like a fraud. That when is God going to find me out? When is he going to stop tolerating me? When are these people around me at Grace and Peace going to realize like, who I am and ask me to leave the church, you know? Well, I think this describes perfectly where the rich young ruler is when he runs up to Jesus. You know, Jesus is, is getting his stuff ready. He's getting his bros. They're like heading towards the door. They're about to set out on this journey. And this rich young man runs up to Jesus and he's like, good teacher, good teacher, Jesus. What good deed must I do to to inherit eternal life. And 
we don't have a ton of background information on who this guy is, but we know a few things. We know that he's rich. He has a lot of money. We know that he's young. He's probably good-looking, probably pretty well-built. And Luke tells us that he's a high-ranking government official. He's basically the cream of the crop. You know, he's killing it socially. He's, he's super popular. He's crushing it in his career. He's light year ahead of his peers. And we know one more thing. We know that he's dying inside. He's got all the marks of a successful, high-achieving person, and he feels like a fraud. And so he runs up to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, where can I find life? What good deed must I do to, to get life? How does Jesus answer him? He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And you're like, man, that's typical, Jesus. Thanks for that, you know? This is, Jesus is doing a Jesus juke here. Um, but do you see the paradigm shift in what Jesus is doing? The rich young man asks, what good deed must I do? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, what good deed must I do? The question is, who is good? Jesus changes the category from doing to being. He changes the category from doing to being. And then Jesus says this. He says, well, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. All right, wait. But... We were just talking about Jesus changed the category from doing to being, and now it sounds like he's telling him to do something. Well, it does on the surface, but, that, but I think what Jesus is actually trying to communicate to this guy isn't, is that, look, there's not just one deed that you do to get life. That there's not just one thing you can do. There's only one way to life, and it's not a way of doing. It's a way of being. There's only one way to get life, and that's by being righteous. By being right with God. By not being guilty of breaking God's law. See, Jesus is exposing a flaw in the rich young ruler's thinking. And more often than not in our thinking too. He's exposing this flaw that our only category for good is us doing something. Right? We think we're so important that we have to save ourselves. Jesus is saying, you're so focused on what you can do, how successful you are, how wealthy you are, how powerful you are. Look, you're not unfulfilled because you haven't done something. You're unfulfilled because you're enslaved to your material possessions. You're enslaved to your success, your acceptance, the power you have over other people. Those are your gods. Those are your masters. And you can never have life until you have God as your God. And so, what does that even mean? What does it mean to have God as our God? simply means this. It means to belong to Him to the exclusion of all other gods. To belong to Him to the exclusion of all other gods. When, when Kelsey and I got married, or when any of us got married, really, uh, but when you get married, one of the most important parts of the ceremony is, is when you say yes, right? Well, Will you take this lawfully, this man to be your lawfully widowed husband, this woman to be your lawfully widowed wife? Yes, yeah, I do, yes. That's one of the most important parts. But what's even more important than that is that in saying yes to each other, we're saying no to everyone else. 
We're saying no to everyone else. We're saying yes to each other to the exclusion of all other possible partners. And, you know, there are plenty of other options, right? Like, you know, for Kelsey more than I, but still there's plenty of other options. But we're saying yes to the exclusion of all others. And it's the same in our relationship with God. When he says yes to us, we say yes to him. I do. That's yes to God to the exclusion of all other gods. You know, one thing that um, scholars have noted for a long time um, that makes these commandments so utterly different, so unique from any other law in any other religious book or any other law in the Bible is this really small detail um, that's really easy to miss. And, and actually, it's, it's indistinguishable in the English, so I'm going to have to go to the Hebrew. Um, it's not just because I'm in seminary, but actually, this is real. Uh, you can't see it in the English, but Whenever a God or a king or a prophet or another leader would address um, Israel as a whole nation, every time without fail, they use something called the second person plural. And so the second person is you, and the plural is all, like you all or y'all for us. Um, And that's not what he does with the Ten Commandments. When you're reading the Ten Commandments, that you, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, that you is not in the second person plural. That you is actually in the second person singular. And for some of you, you're like, I don't know what that means. You know, for Aaron Naylor, it might be like, whoa. Uh, But the you is second person singular. And what that means is that God is speaking directly to you personally. He wasn't making a a generic overall covenant with all of Israel. He was making a covenant with each specific Israelite individually. And, And so now when you're reading the Ten Commandments, when you see that you, he's speaking to you personally. He's saying, I have brought you individually. I brought you out of slavery. I've delivered you. I'm committed to you. I'm your God. I want you to belong to me. I want to cherish you and give you life. I I know that these other gods in your life won't give you that. Don't let other false gods rule your life because you belong to me. You belong to me. So so what does it mean uh, to say yes to God to the exclusion of all other gods? What does that mean for us? Sometimes uh, I think when we come to this commandment, we see do not put other gods before me. Um, I hope this doesn't offend any of you if um, you had a really great football coach or something. That's awesome. But I sometimes think of it like the, the football coach pastor, you know, like, you know, he's huddling up his boys and he's like, all right, boys, just remember, like, the, 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 the most important thing, number one thing is keep God number one. Number two, get the ball in the end zone. But number one, God is first in your life. I don't know why I think that. I don't know if any football coach has ever said that. Uh, but that's just the image that I get in my head. Um, but, but that's not what God is saying. God's not saying, I want to be, you can put that on a sport, a sports ball shirt, Chris, if you want. Um, that's not what God is saying. He's not saying, I want to be number one in your list of priorities. The, the better way to translate before me would actually be to say, uh, you shall not have any other gods before my face. See, like I'm up front talking and I'm standing before you. But that doesn't mean I'm more important than you. That means I'm standing before your faces, right? 
And that's what God is saying. He's not saying, don't have other gods in front of me in line. He's saying, don't have other gods at all. It's not a hierarchy, it's a singularity. Uh, There's a former Harvard MDiv student who turned journalist. He kind of burned out a ministry before he ever got there. He was in seminary, and he was given a job at a church in Boston. You know, he moved to Boston to go to Harvard. He was given a, a job at a church there, and the church that he was given a job at sat on uh, one street in Boston that had the highest homicide rate in the city. And so this guy goes there, and he's kind of thinking, like, he has these high hopes of reaching these inner city youths, and, you know, he would say that he even had this idolatry of, of kind of being this white savior in this neighborhood. And those high hopes and that idolatry was, was shot down pretty quickly when he realized that most of his working hours would be spent cleaning up vandalized windows and, and sweeping up glass from people who have gone by and thrown glass bottles at the side of the church. You know, because in that neighborhood, the church kind of stood as an institution that has oppressed them for years. And um, so people go by and they throw these glass bottles. And so some of his time cleaning, cleaning them up. And, you know, a few months in, he said there was one night where he just couldn't take it anymore. And, and so he walked out to the sidewalk and he got his own glass bottle. And, and he just chucked it at the side of the church. And, and he said of that night, he said, It was an act of apostasy. The breaking of the bottle was meant to be an ending. A final conclusion to a life spent in the powerful and claustrophobic embrace of the church. It was meant to be a break from God. But you trade one God for another, you know. This is how life works. We all have gods. We all have gods. You know, Calvin puts it this way. He says, our minds and our, he- and our hearts are perpetual factories of idols. We're constantly conceiving and creating uh, gods in our head, and, and we make them become a reality in our lives. However you want to say it, the point is this. The point is that we don't have an option to worship or not worship. We only have an option of what we worship. We don't have an option to worship or not worship. We only have an option of what we worship. And this is why when God gives us the first commandment, he doesn't say there are no other gods, Right? He didn't say that. He could have. He is the one true God. There are no other gods beside him. But he didn't say that because he knows that human nature is cunning and it's baffling and it's powerful. And these false gods in our lives, even though they're not real gods, they have real power over us. And that same guy, the seminarian who burned out, he he goes on later in his book to say, we think these gods will serve us, but they only turn out to enslave us and destroy us. You see, God says, you shall have no other gods before me because he knows that if you do, they will eat you alive. They they will suck the life from you. The, The very life that he gave you, that resurrected life, that freedom, which was a gift to you, Your other gods will sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, but bit by bit, they'll take away your freedom and they'll take away your life. And so if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't know what to even think about these other gods. Like, how do I know what is? Here's a a short, pithy definition 
of what is a God in your life, um, this is the best one that I've found. It's very short. Whatever your heart trusts in, clings to, or relies upon, that is properly your God. Whatever your heart trusts in, clings to, or relies upon, that is properly your God. Uh, Rankin Wilburn, uh, another pastor from our denomination, he says this. He says, "A, a false God says to our hearts, if you serve me, if you satisfy me, then you will be happy. Then you will be accepted. But if you don't satisfy me, then you are nothing. If you don't satisfy me, then you have failed. And that's exactly the difference between serving a false God and the true God. Is that a false God says, if you don't satisfy me, you are nothing. But the true God says, I've redeemed you. You are already something. And in me is where you'll find satisfaction. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across to the young man in verse 21. Where he says, he first says you have to be righteous. It's a way of being righteous. And the young man doesn't get it. He says, well, I've kept all these commandments that you're talking about. And I feel like I'm, I'm a pretty righteous dude. What else do I have to do? There must be something else. And so Jesus looks at him. And Mark says, Jesus had compassion on him. Jesus loved him. And he says, my son, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. He says, look, the thing that you're lacking is that you don't have God as your God. You don't belong to God. You belong to your things. The God of your life is not who you think it is. It's not who you say it is. You're trying to serve two masters at once and it doesn't work. So at this point you might be thinking to yourself, you know, well, okay, yeah, sure. I've I've heard this sermon like, you know, a million times uh, every week pretty much. Um, And I don't know why we're still talking about this. But I think the question I would ask you at that point is the same question I ask myself all the time. And I think the question that Jesus is asking this young man is if you already get this, if you already know these things, why are you still trusting in other gods? Why do you still rest in other gods? You see, we all have gods. We don't have the option to worship or not worship. We only have the option of what we worship. So what are we supposed to do with these other gods? We all have them. What do we do with them? Well, I want to look at what Jesus says to the young man. He tells him two things. The first thing he says is, go. Depart from your possessions. Sell your possessions. I think what he's saying is, is first, you have to see those other gods in your life. You have to recognize that you have them. You have to identify them in your life. That's not easy. That's hard work. You have to have this moment of clarity. You have to come to your senses. Have you ever wondered why the rich young man walked away sorrowful? Matthew says at the end, he says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And when we read that, I think a lot of the times, a lot of the time we just think, oh, well, you know, it's easy for us to assume that he walked away sorrowful because he didn't want to get rid of his stuff. Like, of course. But I don't, I don't think that's what Matthew is getting at. I think the young man walks away sorrowful because he didn't know those things were his God. He didn't see that in his life. He couldn't see that his possessions had taken the place of God, and Jesus exposed that in him. 
you know, you would walk away sorrowful too, right? Later in the passage, Jesus says, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful because that's what he heard. Now, I I do want to be clear um, about this, that Jesus is not saying that you, personally, you have to physically leave everything you know. It doesn't mean that, like, today you're supposed to go home, pack up your things, and, like, you know, leave your children to their own discretion and never talk to your siblings again, never talk to your parents again, go live in some remote part of the world. That's not what he's doing. What Jesus is doing is he's pinpointing the things in their first century Jewish culture that often become rival gods to the true God. Their family, their children, their house, their land. He says you have to see these things as they really are. They're good, but they're not God. And when you make them God, they rule over you. They take away your freedom and your life. Okay, well, those things aren't very different from Greenville, South Carolina in the 21st century, are they? You don't have to physically leave those things, but you do have to constantly be checking your heart and demote those things from the place of God in your life, right? You have to demote your house and your siblings and your parents. You have to demote your children. You have to demote... Your finances and your degree and your body image and your political ideology. You have to devote, demote these things from the place of God in your life because they will kill you. Have have you looked at Facebook recently? Your political ideology will kill you. It's killing me. All these things that are good, they can easily become God. So you have to see those things. You have to demote those things. And secondly... Jesus says, come, follow me. You you have to promote God. You have to demote those things and promote God and promote Christ as God in your life. He says, come, follow me. Go, depart from your possessions. Unattached from them, free yourself from them. And come, follow me, attach to me, be my disciple, connect to me. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you want to have life, if you want to be made whole, follow me. And do you know where the rich young ruler would have found himself if he had followed Jesus? I I said before that Jesus was was packing up. He was getting ready to go. He was getting his bros. They were heading towards the door. They were going on a journey. Do you know where they were going? He was going to Jerusalem. He was going to to be crucified for the sins of the world to open up God's covenant with each individual Israelite to all of us in this room. He was going to be crucified for us. If the rich young ruler had followed him, Jesus would have led him straight to the cross. He was inviting this man into freedom from his possessions, into a life that is real and abundant, into a restored relationship with God, where God is his God and not his possessions. And he's inviting you to do the same. There is life to be had, there is joy, and there is hope, and those things are real, but you'll never find them unless God is your God, and you have no other gods before him. 
What Jesus says on the cross is, is even when you fail me, first person singular, even when you fail me, I will never forsake you, second person singular. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much that your word is real and your word is true. Um, and you have rescued us from ourselves and from um, our selfishness. And um, Father, I pray that as we leave this morning, um, as we partake of, of the bread and the wine, that uh, we would feel your presence. And I pray. Amen.